is episode number two of Loose Lips for today. This is our sixth feature. So anyone who's new to Loose Lips, what we do is we do chats with people from different varying backgrounds every Monday and every Wednesday. And this is us on our sixth set of features. And this is our second chat of the day. This is going to be with Neil from King Kobe. He's just sent me the request through. So I'll accept and then we'll get rolling. Let technology do its thing. Yes, brother. How you doing, Ben? I'm good, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. Good. Tired, but good. What's going on? You've been busy. You've been busy. One of the reasons I've reached out and I wanted to speak with you is that since... Uh, so anybody who's watching, this is Neil. This is a uh, co-founder of King Kobe. A lot of people know King Kobe uh, for back when it was email and then... Stepping into the world of King Kobe, you know, real successful barbershop and then broadened the horizons into the fashion world, going into different cities, basically creating an empire and taking over and a real cool, solid brand with a lot of people that feel a lot about it. Now, it's true though, brother, you know that, you've, you've, mm. you've all put it in, man, so that's respect. Now, since the salon has been closed, the, month, the first thing why I got drawn to want to speak to you on this is that Everybody who has sort of been suffering or events having to be cancelled, everyone, even we did it. So uh, me and Ricky, we got IBER event and we put, you know, a statement out and you spoke. You were like, I don't want to put a statement out, I want to speak. And it just made such a difference. It just like, it put everybody with where you were. And then since then, you've not stopped. It's like... You, you know, you had to close the store, but then you're still doing other things. So, you, you know, you have been busy. So would you like to tell us what you've been up to since the store's been closed? Yeah, well, so we, I'm not a social media guy. So I don't have any personal social media. So I, I, run, the, I run the King Cobra Media. Um, but nobody knows me unless they're actually a customer of the store. So we've got 11, 12,000 followers on there. Um, and a small fraction of them are actually our customers. So nobody actually knows that it's me. But I just thought that with the coronavirus stuff going on, it was such a unique event, um, such a huge event that it wanted um, a real person, a real face and a real voice to do it. So, so that was the reason why I did it. Um, and I just think for me, hearing somebody speak always carries much more weight than seeing a post, you know? Um, and anytime you write a post, it doesn't matter how well you write, it's so difficult mm. sometimes to get context, pretext, vortex there. So I just thought you know, it's better just to, um, to press the film button. And it's not natural for me. You know, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a big time introvert. So speaking and stuff isn't natural for me, but I just thought, I thought it was important to do it. But since we shut, we've been busy, man. I mean, I've, I've been real busy. So we've got two real duties of care, I would say, as a business owner and as an employer. One is to make sure that we come out of this better than we went in. I've got 38 people right now that are relying on us to work hard and make good choices to make sure they have jobs to go back to. And the second thing really is to use this to springboard us as a brand forward um, so that we get stronger in the future. So when, if, if situations like this happen again, and I don't just mean you know, a virus, but any kind of recession or things that we don't see coming, that we're, we're much better prepared for it, you know? It is crazy because it, it sort of did take the wind out of everybody's sails. You recently just... Well, how long have you been in the lead site in the Central Arcade? Not long. Uh, the Central Arcade new to about, about nine months we've been there. So I was going to class it as a, as a new move. I didn't really know what, like, window or class it as. But nine months is still relatively new. Yeah, so, new. you know, you're still getting your feet in there, uh, still looking to sort of get fully settled and then something like this happens. So it, it, it has sort of thrown you. And then... Did you say something about York as well? Yeah, well, I mean, York, we've had York for three years, um, and we've had Newcastle for a year. So Newcastle's still relatively new for us. So all of those stores are, are successful, thank God. Um, but, yeah, we had to sh we've had to shut all three of them. But I think the thing, the thing that I'm most kind of proud of from a business perspective is that, and I was honest about this in the, in the first video that I did, is that, look, I didn't take coronavirus seriously at all. I mean, not in any way. In fact, I made posts mocking other barbershops that were saying, oh, you know, don't come into the shop if you're feeling ill, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't think it would affect us. We thought it was too far away. It was media hype. It was blown out of proportion. And we ended up looking, you know, really fucking stupid as a result of that. 
But one of the things I'm proud of is that we were the first shop in Leeds to close our doors voluntarily. So we shut down at least four days before there was any kind of government compulsion to do so. So, you know, we made a mistake initially. We got it wrong. We didn't take the threat seriously. Um, but as soon as we realized, no, this is, this is for real, then, you know, we addressed that. And actually, we put ourselves ahead of the game. So, I mean, I'm, I'm always known for wearing my hats. But right now, I need to properly cover it because... You know, no one wants to see that. No one wants to see that cut there, right? But there must be so many people that are chomping at the bit to, to um, you know, get back and get their hair cut. So is that yeah. something that sort of uh, the, the carrot in, at the end of it, really, where it's like you know that as soon as this, you know, goes away that it should be business as usual for you? Yeah, I think we're quite lucky. I mean, look, we're, we're, in, we're in a service sector, you know? And most people don't class what we do as any kind of luxury. So, you know, when people, when times are hard financially for people, they may stop going out as much. They may stop going to restaurants. They may get rid of their PT. Um, you know, they may stop buying clothes as often, but they're not generally speaking going to stop getting a haircut. So in that respect, even though, you know, we're not the cheapest place to get a haircut, we do provide a service that most people are going to want, you know, they're going to continue to pay for that regardless of their situation. So, I don't see it being a huge problem for us long term, um, thankfully. Having said that, we are in a unique position and I do think that there's going to be a lot of small businesses um, that don't see the, see the end of this. They're not going to come out with this. And I do think we're looking at at least nine or 12 months before this business is normal. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I don't think we've seen the worst of this. So, I mean, the, look, I'm not scared of the virus. Um, I mean, both you and I have been way, way young enough that if we did get the virus, the chances are we'd be fine, you know, um, despite having a, a, having a week or two. The biggest cost of this is going to be financial. And I don't think anybody has really grasped just how huge that's going to be yet, especially for small businesses. So taking us through the sort of rise of your business, because would you still class yourself as a small business? Uh, Technically, yeah. I think any. I mean, technically, I think anything like under fifty employees is a small business. We have thirty-eight plus me, thirty-nine people that, that make their that make their living with the King Cobby banner. But it certainly doesn't feel like a small business in terms of the effort and the time that goes into it. Um, but I mean, yeah, te technically, we're still, we're still a small business. So, would you like to um, take us back to where the initial idea came from, and, and you know, your background into how it got set up? Yeah, so this is our 10th year of King Kobe. Um, I ha I'm, I'm not a barber. A lot of people think I am a barber. I'm not a barber. I've never been a barber in my life. Essentially, so 10 years ago, my brother and I, we um, had a training business. We were actually training dormant, believe it or not, in SIA badges. And we had a small government contract that got the long-term unemployed into door work. Um, and it was nice. It, we were doing something that was societally beneficial. It paid well, you know. Um, both my brother and I are, are, are quite natural at teaching. So for us, it was a perfect fit. We really enjoyed doing it. But then, <clears throat> excuse me, then the recession hit, 2000, 2008, end of 2007. All the government contracts ended almost overnight. Um, and we were done within a week. We went from being you know, financially secure to being done. So my brother and I, we weren't ready to go back and get a job. It was that simple. I didn't want a boss. And I knew that if I did go back into regular employment, that I would probably end up staying there for the next 20 years. Um, so we literally sat down and we Googled fastest growing industries in the UK. Um, and then the, the one that came up was, was mill grooming. So we started off, and the idea wasn't for a barbershop initially. The, initially, the idea was um, a beauty salon for guys. So we sold moisturizers and, and makeup for guys. And we had a beauty salon downstairs. And it turned out that that was just a pretty fucking terrible idea. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't work at all. Um, I don't know if it was ahead of its time or the North wasn't ready for it. I know down in, you know, in London, down South, there's a few of those places that are booming. But you know, the North, it just wasn't the right place for it. And we were called iMail, which again, just a terrible, terrible, all, terrible, all of it was terrible. It was just, just bad. You know, we were, we're not businessmen. You know, we, we, we kind of fell into this and we were, we were finding our feet. So anyway, we were six months in, nine months in, and we had about three or four months capital left in the bank before we were just done. We were done. That was it. No money left, no nothing. And out of the blue, a kid called Sandy Minnell. You know Sandy, right? Yeah, man. Great kid. 
Yeah, so it's out, respect out, to Sandy every time, man. Out of the blue, Sandy walks into my shop. Bear in mind, we're not a barber shop, okay? So he comes in and he says to me, I've just qualified as a barber. Do you have any jobs? I'm like, dude, we're not, we're not a barber shop. Like, it blew my mind when he was even asking me this. So I just said no, but I was, um, he was tattooed, I was tattooed. It turned out we got tattooed by the same guy. Um, and we stuck up a bit of a rapport. And for 20, 20, 30 minutes, we just kind of passed the time with each other. Anyway, I took his CV off him just to be polite. I had no intention whatsoever of ever speaking to this kid again. And that night I went home and for whatever reason, I just kept playing the scenario over and over in my head. What we are currently doing isn't working. Guys are not coming in for backsack and cracks. They're not coming in for beauty. <laughs> it's not working. Fuck it. Let's take the three months money we've got in the bank. Let's get this kid a barber chair. Let's put a sink downstairs in the basement and let's see what happens. And um, yeah, 10 years later, three stores, clothing brand and, uh, and 38 staff. So, you know, thank God for Sandy Minow. Serious? So that's how it got flipped through and then, wow, I never knew that. Essentially, that's what happened. So Sandy came on board and we could, I couldn't afford to pay him. I had no money to pay Sandy. At the time, he was living with his parents in, um, in Brighouse. So I, I'm pretty sure I paid his train fare every day for him to come. And... Um, and that was it. I couldn't afford to pay him. He was just cutting, cutting his friend's hair. He would make £10 here, £10 there, £5 some days. But we had fun. We, I mean, we just had fun. And then eventually he did enough haircuts to justify getting a second guy in. And then we got a third guy in. And we got a fourth guy in. And then we stopped selling the, uh, the beauty stuff altogether. It's like, oh, fuck, I guess we're a barbershop now. I guess we're a barbershop now. And, um, and yeah, that was it. I tell you what's mad about that is... Um... It is the fun. I'd say it does feel like a club. You know, when you go into it, it does have that sort of fun. So it's interesting that that was the springboard and the stepping stone that really, like, that's where it was born out of. Yeah, well, the thing is, so I'm, I'm not a businessman. Even now, I'm not. I struggle with that. I have a business partner who's, who's very much a businessman. You know, and thank God that I've got him because he helps me do the legitimate stuff. But I'm, I'm not that way inclined, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm much more creative. But he, when we first started off, um, there was me, Sandy, Mike. You don't know all these guys, right? Yeah, respect. Mike, Snips, um, Gaz. And there was four or five of us, and we were just having fun. I mean, we literally, we created this little world for ourselves where we were kind of beating the man. We didn't have a job. We weren't working in factories. Renegades. That's what yeah. it felt like. We weren't making any real money, but it was enough to keep the bailiffs at bay. And um, we just, we had fun. That was it. We had fun. And then we did that for maybe two or three years. And all of a sudden, it, we just started making money. Like, it's like, oh, shit, this is a, we're busy. Like, we're fully booked. Like, how did this happen? And in that first shop that we had in the corn exchange, we went from four chairs to 10 um, really, really quickly. So it, we just, it boomed. It just boomed. I tell you what's interesting from that point of a perspective of it all is the way that it boomed. Was that then when the creative side of yourself came in and you wanted to switch up the name and you know go down this avenue of, of the brand? And, and how far was that in? Was that that was like was that two three years in? A bit later. Yeah, so we were called iMail even in the corn exchange for a long time. I think um, the first three years we were called iMail, and then I had my son, um, yeah, Kobe. So Kobe's what he's, he's eight now. So basically, when we started becoming successful and we had these ideas of, hey, maybe we could get a second store. Maybe we could do a clothing line. Maybe we could do hair care products. Like, yeah, this is, this is exciting. Mm, email. Email. You want to wear a T-shirt that says email on it? Like, it just sounds <laughs> like, a, like a male brothel. It doesn't work. <laughs> so we began to think of new names. And we, we kept coming up with all these different names. And my son, because um, I was a full-time dad at the time, um, thankfully, you know, it was one of the biggest blessings of my life, but Kobe would come to the shop with me every single day. And the guys would just call him King Kobe. That was his nickname, King Kobe. So I think it was Snips actually that suggested it and just said, King Kobe, let's call it King Kobe. And ironically, at first, I didn't like it. Um, Sandy hated it, but Sandy's one of them guys. Sandy doesn't like change. So <laughs> Sandy, Sandy hated it. I liked it. A few of the guys liked it. Some didn't. And we sat on it for three or four weeks and just kept playing it over. King Kobe, King Kobe. Fuck it, man. Yeah, King Kobe, it works. And, um, and that was it. That was how it was born. 
Do you, um, as we're speaking now, what's really amazing is seeing like your face as you're reminiscing and you know looking at that sort of period of time and how it how yeah. everything sort of shaped to be. And I know sort of people have gone their separate ways and stuff, but do you look at that time fondly? And and yeah, is that something that you know you hold sacred at that time? Those people at that time as well. Oh, look, a hundred percent. Look, see, I mean, you probably know the story more than most people do because you know we've got the similar friends. So. I mean, for complete disclosure, I don't speak to those guys anymore. It's been, it's been years since I've spoken to those guys. Um, you know, and that's sad. And the reality is, I don't really know the reason for that. I, I don't really know how, how that works. You know, sometimes life takes people in this direction and you go in another direction. But I have said to anybody that was ever asked me this question, that I have nothing but good things to say about those guys. You know, without those guys... I wouldn't have had King Kobe. I wouldn't have had the foundation that we had, you know? So I, I have nothing but respect for those guys. But I, I do think that there they came a natural split. A lot of them went to open their own shop, which is fine. At the time, it wasn't fine. So at the time, I was really kind of personally hurt by that, you know? But, and, and that's one of the, the dangers of having a business that's not really a business. So we'd had this business, but these guys were also my best friends. I mean, literally my best friends, you know? They would stay at my house two, three times a week. They would babysit my son. We went on holiday together, for God's sake. Yeah, we yeah. spent all of our time together. So the line between friend and boss becomes so blurred that it's invisible. So at what point can I give someone a bollocking? How, how do I bollock the guy that just yesterday was, was, was watching my kids so I could go to the gym? You know, It becomes really difficult to do that. So at the time when they went to open their own shop, um, it hurt me. I, you know, personally, it upset me and it hurt me. Now, looking back, of course I understand it. You know, every man wants more for himself. Every man wants to own his own thing. So I do. That's why I started King Kobe in the first place. Um, but there's no animosity, none. I think people assume that there is, but there isn't. You know, any one of those guys, and I mean this, any, any one of those guys could call me at three in the morning and need my help, and I'd be there for all of them, you know. Paul and Gaz and Mike, you know, I love those guys. I love those guys. We're probably very different people now to who we were then. Um, and, and a friendship as intense as it was then wouldn't work now. But my God, I had some of the best times of my life with those guys. So there's not one bit of me regrets a single part of that journey. How do you then manage the change of such influential characters into the new breed of King Kobe? And sort of leaning on from what you've said, is that already prevalent in your mind now that there's boss and there's friend as opposed to the two worlds intermingled? Yeah, so when they left, it was a, it was a wake-up call that my style of, not management, I'm not a manager, I never was, and I hope I never am, but the way in which I approached business needed to change because we, essentially what had started off as a boys' club had become a very profitable business, and I wasn't taking care of that side of things, you know? So I was very free and loose with the money, which I don't regret. Um, we you know, gave lots of money away again, which I don't regret, but it wasn't sustainable. It, it's not a way that you can run a business, you know? Um, and sometimes the guys didn't understand that in the end. Because when, look, when you're used to a certain level of generosity for somebody or relying on somebody, and I don't mean intentionally, you know, we can all rely on people without doing it maliciously. But I don't think I helped them in a lot of ways, you know, because they, and it wasn't all of them by any means, but certainly there was two or three that, that could rely on me all of the time for anything. So, hey, you you go out all weekend and you spend your entire week's wage on coke, don't worry, I got your back. I'll give you a sub on Monday morning. I wasn't teaching them anything. And then when it became time for me to say, I can't do this anymore, it looked like I was the bad guy. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So it was a real steep learning curve. Like having your own business is tough. It's really, really tough. There's, there's no two ways about it. But um, when they left, because we were all so close and so tight, um, like there was a, there was a, I panicked, you know? I thought, is this the end of King Kobe? Because I believe so much that we were King Kobe. Sandy was King Kobe. Mike was King Kobe. Snips was King Kobe. Gaz was King Kobe. And without that very particular group of people, it would collapse. Um, and it, it, thankfully, it didn't. You know, we proved that the brand was stronger than any one individual, which is, is exactly the way it should be. You know, it's exactly the way it should be. Um, so, yeah, we, we came out of it good in the end. But it was, it was difficult. It was difficult at the time financially, and it was definitely difficult, you know, personally and emotionally. I'm, I'm not going to hide away from that. 
So do you um, take people on who are at the very start of their barbering careers then? Like, do you do like a sort of scholarship? Because if you're taking people who are coming through and you've got that, that sort of step over into the new realm of the new era of King Kobe, is that something where you, you'd like to think that you could bring your own, own crew through? Yeah, so we do that now. So we've um, we had a big recruitment drive actually before the lockdown happened. We took on five new guys. So we have a mixture of people that have been barbers for years and years and years. And we've got a couple of guys that are, are brand new to the industry. None of that matters to me, to be honest. It doesn't matter to me at all. I, I, I don't care. Look, barbering, and there's a lot of barbers in Leeds, I won't thank them for saying this. It's a bullshit, pretentious industry. It just is. It's, it's a bullshit, pretentious industry. And, and what I mean by that is that and I think most barbers would agree, if they're honest, is that barbers have become now what tattooists were four or five years ago yeah. and what rock stars were before tattooists, you know? And it's like, let's have some perspective here. We cut hair. That's all we do. We do short back and sides. Now, we do it fucking good. We do it exceptionally well. We'll give you a great cut, a great experience. But all we're doing is cutting hair, you know? And now we have barbers that want to teach you how to do a 20-minute consultation with your client and they'll talk to you about weight distribution in the hair. It's like, no, nah, look. Our guys don't want that. We've never been asked for that ever. It's, um, it's a very, very strange industry. And I think the one thing, well, there's many things, but one of the main things that has kept King Kobe so relevant is that we've refused to play that game. We, do, we just don't play that game. We are what we are. We stand for something other than just cutting hair. We don't participate in the industry. We don't participate in bullshit. We... I won't have anybody working for me as an ego. I don't care how fucking good a barber you are. If you're a dick or you've got an ego, you won't last long at King Have Kobe. you come across that? Oh, yeah, we've come across that several times. And it's, um, those guys don't last very long, you know. But King Kobe is still, just like it was, you know, in the Sandy and the Mike days, we're a very, very laid-back place. So I have, no, I have very few rules. You don't, don't steal from me, don't lie from me, don't lie to me, and turn up on time. There are three rules. That's it. That's it. As long as you don't break those three rules, we're good. I will never bother you. I won't ask you a question. Just come, do your shit, have fun, go home. That's, that's it. That's the way it should be, you know? And it helps us to keep that perspective. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We cut hair. We're barbers. That's it. That's all we're doing. We ain't changing the world. We do it exceptionally well, and we're very, 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 very proud of it. But, um, yeah, we're never going to play that industry game. Never. Was one of the reasons why you moved to the new shop in Central Arcade to, again, enhance that experience because now you're doing coffees and other sort of uh, refreshments. So was that something that you wanted to... Because people don't just go to uh, generally sit in a chair, get their hair cut, they've got to wait, there's a different time scale. So yeah. was that something around that uh, psychology in addition as well? Yeah, a little bit. Although, to be honest, if I'm, if I'm really truthful, I'm, I'm, I'm not that smart. It was a bit of an afterthought, to be honest. The, the main reason for the move was... We had two shops in Leeds. So we had one in the central arcade upstairs and yeah. we had the one in the corn exchange. Um, both shops were really busy. Both shops were fully booked. Both shops were doing great. But I was paying two rents. I was paying two service charges. I was paying two business rates. Um, so I was, fuck it. Let's, let's move more together. It will save money and it will create a great experience. So the shop that we have now... Sorry to just jump in there. Yeah. Did you open the second one because of the footfall? And was, there, was that the only place that was available? Would you not have got another place in the corn exchange at that time? We tried to. So what the idea was when we were in the corn exchange, I really wanted to knock through and, and keep it like one big, one big unit there, but the corn exchange wouldn't allow us to do it. So um, we had no choice but to open the second shop. But we got to a point in the corn exchange, I mean, thankfully, where we were turning around, especially on a Friday and Saturday, we were turning away you know, 10, 15, 20 haircuts a day, you know? And I was like, I can't afford to be turning yeah. these guys down. And that's because there's no real loyalty, right? And, don't, and what I mean by that is, right, if someone gets the haircut by Sandy, yeah, they're going to go to Sandy nine times out of 10. But if they've got a, a hot date on that Saturday night or a job interview on that Monday morning and Sandy just can't do it, they're going to go to a different shop, even just that one time. So we knew it was important to capture as much footfall as we can. So we had to go and open the second shop. But combining them was more of a business decision. But to be fair, now that we have combined them, I really think we've created something special. I mean, even the shop, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. To the, the, I really like the long table down the middle. It seems like that's what I mean. It seems like it's more of a communal hub. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's what it was designed for. And it just, it's um, not being too pretentious. It, it just, it fucking looks cool. It's a cool looking <laughs> shop, you know. And if you're going to come in on a Saturday afternoon and you're going to sit there and you're going to wait 35, 40 minutes for your haircut. You may as well be sat somewhere that, that's visually pleasing, you know? 
And then in the back of the shop, we have Defiance, which is the, the coffee and donut shop, um, which started just before lockdown. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's about creating an experience, but one that's um, not too far away from where we first started. Do you find that um, with that, the Defiance side, there is, because it's such a, a sort of cool brand that you have, people do just generally want to chill there. So are you going to have like the clothes that are going to be in brand? And it's generally a space where if people are shopping and they want to go for a coffee, they can just come and like sit in there for a few hours. Or is it, it you know, you've got to be getting a haircut in, chill, and then out. Like, how do you manage the two? No, no, we get people that, that come in and just chill, and we'll, we'll sit there and get coffee, and that's fine. We're happy for that. Like I say, you know, the, the main thing is the entire environment and the entire circle is very laid back. So, you know, and we'll have, um, happens a lot with the younger guys. We'll get, like, a 16-year-old kid coming for his haircut, where he'll bring four of his mates in. With yeah. <laughs> they then, like, be up, like, five teenagers sat there. But, you know, they're enjoying themselves, and the music's good, and they're getting a coffee, and... There's a pretty girl behind reception and, you know, because they're 15, 16, they're looking up to these tattooed barbers and thinking they're the coolest thing ever. So, you know, they're having, they're having a good experience from that too, you know. Now, what about the clothing side of King Kobe? How did that idea materialise and how's it been going? And are you doing it seasonally? No. So, the, the clothing has been a fuck up from start to finish. So, and we're honest enough to own that. Now, so originally the clothing started off with um, me, Mikey, um, Snips, and my brother. And we were all doing this. This was about five years ago. And the concept was amazing. We have some really strong logos and branding that we use in the shop. So the brand was amazing. Everything was amazing, you know? And we had these great ideas. And the bottom line is, if we're all honest, of, of the people involved, none of us did what we were meant to do. We didn't work very well as a fucking team, you know? Um, when one of us was really on it and grafting, the other one was lazy. When one was lazy, one was grafting. We, we, we couldn't get our shit together. It's that simple. And um, it was frustrating because we had this great fucking product and we knew it. Yeah, and it was strong. It, it looked look serious. Well, I mean, based on the first designs we did, we had Topman approach us and wanted to stock the stuff, you know? I mean, that, that's, that's how, well, about Alan Trump now, but that's how good it was, you know? It, it, we, we were presenting something that was new. You know, no one was doing these t-shirts with, you know, mediocrity a sin and coverage over comfort. It, it, it meant something, you know? So, anyway, eventually it became kind of just me, Snips, and Leroy. And we did some good stuff. We did some really good work. Um, and we sold a lot. And that was a good thing. So, every time we produced something, the feedback was amazing and people loved it. But we never, we never quite got it right. We never quite got the distribution right. We never quite got the suppliers right. We never quite got the marketing right. Um, but to rectify all that, ironically, we launch again next month. So a full relaunch of everything. This time, we've got marketers on board, we've got Instagram people on board, we've got influence on board, and we're going all in. You know, we're going to we're throwing some, some real money at it. Because it's, it's one of those things, you always hear, don't you, about these success stories, where, you know, where it's a big global brand or whatever. And they'll say, you know, we, we knocked on the door four times, five times, six times, seven times, it just didn't work, didn't work, didn't work, didn't work, and we kept going. And this is one of those things where I really think that we have something. I think we've got something that's, that's cool. Um, so, yeah, we're going back again. We're going to knock on the door for the fourth time. But um, we don't mind admitting it that we, we, we fucked it up a lot. And will that be with the uh, new designs? Yeah, so there's going to be a mixture. It's going to be a mixture of the old designs. Um, and we've got, some, we've got some new designs coming as well. So there'll be T-shirts, cut-off T-shirts, hoodies, bubble bags and caps to begin with. Um, and then, depending on how well that all goes you know we'll probably get in there with some you know some more complicated designs coming at time but it's uh that's one of the things that kind of excites me the most you know well this is another thing which jumps on then what keeps you excited and motivated and how do you know if you're spinning too many plates like is there a inkling to open as many sites as you can because you've got one of the biggest brands or is the looking after base camp and making sure that collectively what you have works before you start stepping out that's a really good question so we we grew too quick. In hindsight, we grew too quick. Um, and I think that was probably part of the reason why the relationship, you know, between me and the early guys kind of broke down is that when money becomes involved and you start growing things, you have people that were with you from the very beginning when you had nothing. And now you've got something and you're building it. So, well, how much of that do I get? How much of the share do I get? And we went and we opened our second shop quickly and our third shop quickly. And it was too much, you know? And it wasn't too much from a time point of view we could manage that that was fine but in terms of managing expectations and managing people and managing staff um 
and I underestimated all of that. I really underestimated how complicated it is dealing with people and dealing with people's expectations. So that was, that was the hardest thing, you know, um, for me was, was getting all that right. And we've only just begun to get that right now, if I'm honest. We're only just getting it right now. I mean, we've, got, we've been doing this 10 years. Yeah. And um, I still, and I mean this genuinely, you know, on a daily basis, I still feel like a charlatan. I still don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Um, I still feel like I'm winging it, you know? Do you think that helps sometimes, though, with that uh, subtle naivety sometimes to decisions? You're just like, let's throw caution to the wind and go with it. Yeah, well, I'm, look, I'm naturally a very reckless person anyway. So, and um, I'm, well, I should probably have some context that should I before people just <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not risk averse at all. Um, you know, probably dangerously so sometimes. But I'm like, fuck it, boom, let's go all in. Let's go all in. Like, what's the worst that can happen? You have a tell on my face that indicates just that. What's the worst that can happen? I'm going to be alive. My kids are healthy. They're safe. I'm, I'm never going to be hungry. I'm never going to be homeless. Fuck it. Let's go. Um, well, my business partner is more reserved than that, which is good. So the balance between the two of us works really well. Um, you know, I'm all in. He reigns me back. And somewhere in the middle is kind of where the magic happens, if you like. And then stepping away from King Kobe, because the way you speak, you're a real good public speaker. And I know when we were speaking probably six months ago, you were saying that you were at um, some convention and what it the Guardian who came up and spoke with you? Yeah. Um, do, do, so do you want to get into that? And do you think that that's a bit of a, a path for you as well? Yeah, I was... Um, I was uh, have you heard of a guy called Jordan Peterson? Yeah. Okay, well, Jordan Peterson, he's, he's one of my intellectual heroes. I discovered him about four or five years ago. And the man, honestly, I can't, he's, he's changed my life without a doubt. But anyway, I went to go see Jordan Peterson live in um, Birmingham. And there was, um, he had a halftime break on one of his shows. I've been to a team three or four times. He's never had a halftime break ever, which is weird. But this time he did. So um, I went outside to get some fresh air. But how long are his talks to the like David Ike then if he's got an halftime break? No, thank God. Ike does like nine, ten hours, doesn't he? No, he's, he's a usually between two and a half and three hours long. There. Um, but I mean, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't mention David Icke and Jordan Peterson in the same breath, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's for a different time. Um, so I'd gone outside and I was just texting on my phone, and this girl come, comes walking across to me, and she's an attractive girl, okay? So this attractive girl walks over to me, and, and me, full of ego, assumes that I'm being hit on. So she comes across and she's asking me a few kind of random questions what do you think of the show and what attracted you to Jordan Peterson? Um, and I just think I'm getting chatted up, you know? Like a dick. <laughs> And she says, do you mind if I speak to you for a bit longer? I go, no, no, it's, it's cool. Ask, ask me whatever you want to ask me. And as soon as I give that response, she literally clicks her fingers and two fucking guys with a boom mic and a camera and a big light come out. And uh, it turns out they were from The Guardian. But um, I spoke to her for two or three minutes. We exchanged numbers and I got a phone call from her the next day. And she said, I've shown the footage that we shot to my editor. Um, and they liked what you had to say. They thought it was unique. And would you mind if we come down to Leeds and, and do a couple of days filming with you for a, a documentary series that we're filming about modern masculinity? So I said, no, that's, that's great. So they did. They came down and they filmed two. They, so they, there was a, a 45 minute interview that was just me and her. Um, and then there was a shorter one, like a 12 or 13 minute documentary that was filmed in the shop that interviewed me and Snips and some of the other guys. And um, between the two videos, got like 750,000 views. And wow. um, it just, yeah, it just, it just went mental. And on, on the back of that, I got all sorts of emails and invites to things and invites to speak at different events. And there was a watch company in Switzerland that filmed a documentary with me and P. You spoke to the other day. I don't know if P told you about that. Yeah, yeah. And me and P did something together. So it was, that was a good um, chat with P. Good guy, yeah, P. Yeah, P's a great guy, man. A really good guy. So, yeah, so I've been doing a lot of that. And uh, um, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy it, you know. And I, in fact, it's weird. When I spent that day filming, the girl's called Imam, the Guardian journalist. You can find it on YouTube. And um, it was a bit of a wake-up call for me in one sense because I got to the end of that day and I had that kind of endorphin buzz that you get, you know? And I remember thinking to myself, and it was quite profound for me, it won't sound profound, just thinking, I've enjoyed my day today. Like, I don't remember the last time I enjoyed my day. I don't, I mean, I'm talking years, and I don't mean have, I have moments where I enjoy my day when I'm with my son, obviously, but from, from morning to night, I enjoyed my day today. I was like, fuck, that's because I'm doing something I care about. I'm, I'm in 
a zone where I'm meant to be. I'm talking about things that I'm passionate about. I'm engaged. I was like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. I enjoyed my day today, you know? It was, it was, it was a powerful experience for me. So how do you uh, head further down that path then? Is there more opportunities and is it something that you want to pursue? And then coming full circle, I suppose, again, how do you balance that side of it with King Kobe? Well, so I've been asked to do a lot of things, which is nice. So I haven't had to do too much pursuing of my own. I keep getting invited to, to, to give talks, etc., which is really good. Um, I've just started writing a book as well, um, which will be finished probably by the, by the end of the summertime. On this um, topic as well? Probably... On the same topic? Yeah, well, yeah. so I, well, I, I have two. Um, so there's one I'm working on, which is going to be about masculinity, which is something I think is, is in crisis at the moment, an important topic. And then the other one that I'm working on now, which is, it's a simple idea. You see all these memes on Instagram and Facebook, right? That people share, one intention, but it's bullshit. Don't let anybody tell you you're not beautiful. Don't let any, you're perfect the way you are. You're good enough just in your current state. All this kind of nonsense. And every time I see them, I'm tempted to write out this big long reply and say why this is nonsense because, it's, you know, there's not a level of truth that we have with people. So anyway, I'm doing like a coffee table book where on one page will be this, a big picture of the meme and on the other page will be me basically breaking down why that meme is nonsense and what you should do instead. So. It's kind of, um, so it's almost like off. the pent-up replies you just put in the, the suit. So rather than put yeah. it out there, you're like, I can, I can make some, I can make a book out of this. Yeah, because it's, it's just, it's, it's one intention nonsense. We, we, we live in such, um, it's even cliche to say it, but we, we live in such a fucking soft society, you know, and we don't tell people the truth. We just, we don't, we don't tell the truth to each other, you know. If you're telling somebody they're good enough the way they are, I don't even, what does that mean? If you're good enough the way you are, your life's done. Because where else do you, you have to go after that, you know? And the reality is most of us aren't good enough the way we are. And we know it. But that's the real thing. We know it. Like, you know. You know at three in the morning when you're looking in the mirror who the fuck you are. You know what's wrong with you. You know the things that you should fix and that you avoid. You know, we don't want to be told we're good enough the way we are. We want to be told you could be a lot more than you currently are. That's yeah. a powerful message. So that's the thing what I was going to say is, because when you say... When you go at something like that, people can be a bit standoffish. It's like, well, but when you come back with how you ended it with, it's the terminology of how you get people in the frame of yeah. mind to want to be better. Well, the thing is, look, so when, you, when you're talking about truth, the reality is that most truth, almost all truth is brutal, okay? Almost all truth is not very pleasant. And the truth about who we are as individuals generally isn't very pleasant, you know? That, you know we're, all of us are made up of, of demons and dark matter and nasty things and secrets. But unless, unless you find a way to face that and to accept that and to be honest about the things in you that are not nice, you can never become who you really want to be. But we live in a culture now that gives us so many places to fucking hide. You never have to reveal the true you, you know? And it was John Peterson that had given this brilliant analogy, which has always stuck with me. And he, he was recounting the story of going through this process himself. So he describes himself as a 25-year-old. He'd just finished grad school in Canada. And he realized it had dawned on him during a conversation with a friend that he didn't know who the fuck he was, that he was fake laughing during conversations, that he was saying things just to win an argument. He realized that he was a slightly different person depending on who he was with. And that actually there wasn't one coherent Jordan Peterson, you know, and it bothered him. And he said that he, he meditated on this for a long time. And he realized that 95% of the person he was, was Deadwood. 95% of him was a lie. 95% of him was a mixture of society, culture, his parents, his ideals, who he thought he should be. 95% of him needed to be gone if he was to ever become the person that he wanted to be. And he said, that's a terrifying realization. He said, so what do you do in that situation? What do you do? So he said, well, what I decided to do was let 95% of me burn off. And he said, but all I had left was 5%, this little husk of a person. But that 5% was pure, it was, had integrity, it was honest, it was trustworthy, it was truthful, and it gave me a base to build my character upon, which is exactly what he went and did. But um, who the fuck wants to admit that 95% of them isn't genuine? You know, none of us want to do that. And when you tell somebody that, they will fight you tooth and nail. That's a really interesting. Now, what do you think that that's, um, the, you know, those sort of focus points to you have, be, have paid dividends in how you are doing now with the business? 
you know, we started off the conversation with you reminiscing about the early days and I, I mentioned how you look at it fondly and it seems like there's been a good process for you to be able to reflect back and still see the the, the beauty of those early days. Do you think yeah. the lesson that you've just given there has helped you to sort of be, a, you seem very quite calm and zen. Um, yeah, I, I'm a very calm person, at least on the surface. You know, I, I, I have a lot of rage inside. Um, it comes from all sorts of different places, you know, childhood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm, I'm, nobody has any stories of Neil Smurphy losing his shit. No, no one has a story of that. You know, I don't, that's not how I, how I conduct myself. doesn't mean to say the anger and the rage isn't there. It is. But I just try and harness that for good, you know. And that's another thing. We're kind of taught that anger and rage are bad things and, and they're not. Anger and rage are essential. Like, if you're not angry, you're not in the game. If you're not full of rage at something, you're not in the game. It just depends how you show that rage. Well, for me, yeah, look, it was powerful because I've had to look back over my life as, as a business owner, especially, and even more so as, as a father, um, and say, okay, where have I been less than I should have been? And that's an awful thing to admit. Where have I not been a great dad? Who the fuck wants to admit that? Where was I not a great husband? Where was I not a great boss? Where, where did I show poor leadership? Um, and I've had to address those things and be honest about them and say, no, I fucked up. I fucked up time and again. I've, I've, and going all the way back to my teenage years and through my 20s, I was just like Jordan Peterson was at that age. I, was, I wasn't a real person. I was full of deceit. I was full of lies. I was full of anger. I was full of manipulation. Um, I wasn't a particularly nice person. I, um, I spent a lot of time relying on the fact that I could talk a certain way and I looked a certain way and that got me through. That got me through life. I, I, it gave me a place to hide. But it's not until you really have the courage, you know, and courage, that's the right word. That's the right way to conceptualize it because it's, it's, it's heroic to be able to go inward in that way and say, right, what is there in me that needs to die if I am to be the best version of me? And it's, it's terrifying and it's agony. It's painful. It's painful to do that. It's painful to know that I have it in me to not be the best father. It's painful to know that I have it in me to burn it all to the ground because I've got it in me. There's part of me that's like, fuck it, let it burn, let it burn. You know, I have that in me. And I spend a lot of my time, you know, making sure that part of, of, of my character never, never surfaces. I'm really grateful for your brutal honesty in this, you know. And I think that it really is a, an extension of why King Kobe has lasted so long. Yeah. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. It's Because um, it isn't something I've always been, you know, I, I, I spent a... I'm very honest now because I've spent a long time being dishonest. Would you say as well, uh, you're honest now because you've faced everything. And I always say the two moments of the day where you can't deny it to yourself are when you brush your teeth in the morning at night and you look yourself in the mirror. Those are the two moments where you can look yourself and go, I've lived it, I've done it, or what could I have done better? And you can't yeah. lie to yourself. And it's like, it seems you're in a place now where you are so open and honest because you've faced everything. Like, what else is there not to give? You've faced everything. You've gone in and faced it. So if you've faced that and overcome that, then it's the only thing that you have. I'm a massive believer of vulnerability. And I, I, I agree with what you're saying. It's just sometimes the terms and, you know, I, me and my best mate, he's a massive Jordan Peterson fan. And uh, he's never really resonated with me, but I've listened to him a few times and I get his point. But for me, it's more the term, it's the words that he gets. But I think we sort of get to a similar point of it as well. But I think like, for me, where you said courage, I agree it's courage, but I also think that it's uh, vulnerability as well. It's being comfortable with your own vulnerability. Well, Vulnerability is the same thing as courage. When you when you really break it down, well, I mean, it, it, it's kind of the same thing. You know, it takes courage to be vulnerable. And so I think showing your vulnerability is actually a sign of strength. Showing weakness is not a sign of strength. And that's the term people. That's use. an interesting perspective because the, the the two words sort of don't offer the same. But I suppose the point of the meanings of them are. Well, so be, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can see what you mean. You're like you're a big boxing fan, yeah, like me. Okay. Boxing is one of, the, one of the three things on the face of the earth I'm passionate about. Now, you think about it. What happens when, uh, who can we use? But Fury Wilder, okay? When both of those men step into the ring, okay? Now, both of them believe they're going to win. They have yeah. to. That's, a, that's, the, that's the, the mindset of a champion. There is an ounce of doubt in either of their mind. But also, the reality is they're both exposing themselves to the world. They cannot get in that ring unless they're vulnerable. They're exposing their vulnerability. Somebody will lose. Somebody will get hurt. Somebody will get knocked out. That takes courage. 
vulnerability is courage. It's the same thing. We just don't often make that connection, you know? If you do anything, you are vulnerable, partly because you're vulnerable to failure. You know, if you say, I'm going to win a marathon, well, you better fucking win that marathon because if you don't, you're vulnerable to the criticism of not doing what you said you would do. So anytime we display courage, vulnerability goes hand in hand with us. I'd say on the back of that, it's almost, and I'm from Bradford, and I always say that it's, I do the things that I say I'm going to do because in Bradford you would be called out if you didn't and it's like, well, <laughs> you might as well do it and see it through. But that's always stayed with me and remained with me and I really see that as a strong light asset that I have. But I'd say more the vulnerability side and the courage, the way you've, the way you've painted it and linked them together, I definitely see that side of it. But for me, I think the vulnerability is... And this, I think this is where sometimes with Jordan Peterson, I think he can lose some people and maybe it's where he's lost me is that I don't see that there's uh, empathy there. I think vulnerability for me, it's very empathetic. I think when you open yourself yeah. up to be vulnerable, people can engage with your story or personal like position of where you are so that people get an insight into your points. And I think yeah. sometimes how he puts it across, it, it's not condescending, but it, it, it's, a, it's of a level talking down sometimes. But, you know, rather than getting to a, a back and forth with Jordan Peterson, I think what, what I'd like to sort of say is I really like the way that you've... I really like the way that you're linking two almost opposing views, which are technically the same. And sometimes I think that that's more powerful. I think that in society, we can be too hung up and being right rather than looking for what is the right way to move forward. Oh, 100%. And this is, this is the thing I think, you know, look, vulnerability is a part of life. So we're all vulnerable. If you fall in love, you're vulnerable because you may lose. If you become a parent, you're vulnerable. If that child dies, you're going to be in a world of pain that you will never recover from. You're vulnerable. Anytime you take a step forward in the world towards anything that has meaning and integrity and character and purpose, you are by definition vulnerable. Because... You wouldn't, look, in order to count something as truly meaningful, you have to consider its loss as also truly meaningful. And to lose something makes you vulnerable. You know, so vulnerability and courage, although they may seem like opposing ideas, for me, they're one and the same thing. You can't have one without the other. Courage exposes you to vulnerability and vulnerability exposes you to courage and vice versa. And just coming back really quickly to that Peterson thing, I know you don't want to get stuck on it too much for the empathy thing. Um, I think you're right, and I understand how Peterson can be seen as that sometimes. What Peterson, the point Peterson takes is he advises people about the end game, and that's where I'm at in my life. It's all about the end game, and empathy is important. There's no two ways, okay? And I consider myself an empath to some degree, you know, and I used to be much more of an empath, but I also think, and this is something nobody really discusses, is that empathy and compassion, when taken to their logical conclusions, become cancers. They don't become tools to assist people with. If you show too much empathy and too much compassion, all you do is imprison people in the habits that they already have. There comes a point when empathy and compassion just become crutches, you know? And it's very difficult to see that because we're, wired, you know, we're good people and we're wired to see victims, you know, as people who want to help and want to encourage them and build them up. But there comes a point when empathy and compassion no longer work. And the only thing that works then is brute force honesty. And if brute force honesty doesn't work, then it's time to walk away. Fair, powerful, powerful stuff, my brother. Uh, we've come into the end of it, and I'd like to sort of wrap up with, well, 10-year anniversary. What, what do you believe King Kobe, what does it, what would you say it stands for? It's a good question. And I think for me personally, it's changed over the years and it's, it's almost gone full circle for me, you know? So in the beginning, King Kobe stood for brotherhood, cheesy cliched word, but it did. It meant something to us, it, it, you know? Brotherhood, loyalty, altruism. We wanted to put things back into the community. And I think, and I'll be honest about this, when, when the first batch of guys left, I had a bit of a crisis as to what King Kobe weren't. And I went down the path of, fuck this, there's now money, money, money. Let's make as much money as we possibly can. And I lost my way for a little bit, you know? I, I lost my way and allowed my head to be turned too much. I'd gone from being too soft to too hard, you know? And that's often the case, isn't it? You think, well, this hasn't worked. I'm going to go to the extreme. And I was too hard and now I'm coming back to the center. And for me, despite all of those things, the brotherhood and the altruism, which are all beautiful qualities, and they do mean something, you know? And we have a great team of people and I, I treat them well. And I think they would all say good things about me. And I'm proud of that. What it really means to me, and you know what, it didn't mean this to me until recently. I, I had a moment, 
trying not to tear up here. I had a moment with my son, Kobe, obviously he's named after. And it's about three or four months ago and he came into the shop and without being asked, he picked the bush up and he started sweeping the hair around the shop. And I asked him what he was doing. And he said, well, it's my name on the door, isn't it, Dad? So I've got to make sure the shop's clean. And it was the first time that I became truly aware that, that he was aware. And I'm like, yeah, that's your name on the door, little man. That's your name. Fuck. Daddy better get his shit together. Daddy better get his shit together. But Daddy better start working harder. Because ultimately, I love my staff. I love Sandy and Mike and all those guys that came before that helped make it what it is. But ultimately, I'm doing this so that my son and my daughter, you know, have options in life, you know, so they don't have to do 12, 13 hour days like we do. And for me, that's what it means. For me now, that's what it means. I'm, uh, it's for them. You know, the future, the future belongs to my children. It doesn't belong to me. May powerful, powerful sentiment to wrap up on. And thank you for one of the most honest chats that I've had. No, you're welcome. Powerful, incredible. I feel like it's been enough time. We do another hour. You know what? Um, I'm going to be looking to, uh, when everything lifts, start like some form of podcast. This was sort of the initial idea, but loose lips came because of been in lockdown and now yeah. I'm going to keep this format because we can be wherever and I really like the way that it um, splits on the screen and you know I interview people in New York and stuff but there's no, still something cool, where if, if we're talking face to face you know like did you do that interview with P when he's in the ring is that the thing when you were in Switzerland then yeah so yeah, that yeah, mate that's why up. I wanted to speak with P because that was deep and that's what I'm saying is you feel that and I think when I speak, you know, I, I pride myself on my integrity and I really love eye contact with that respect. And I think a lot of what we could have spoke, what we've just spoke about then, it's been felt, but face to face in that sort of environment. So and no, there's definitely like going to be a further talk down the line, brother. Uh, even yeah. if King Kobe want to start a podcast, you've got an host here. You never know, man. No, man, I'd love it. Definitely anything like that. We're, we're down for it, man. Down for new ideas. Respect, man. You stay safe, stay cool. And uh, good luck with everything as well. And I'll see you when we get out of this. All right, Ben. Take care. If you need anything, give me a shout, bro, okay? Respect, brother. Thank you. Take Peace. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Respect. Yo, respect Barney for clocking in there. Thank you, Nathan Sharp. Me, a blonde star. Thank you for all your comments. Sorry I wasn't able to read uh, any out as we were going on, as you could tell. We got fully locked in there and a proper a deep one and a solid chat. Um if you're new to this, this is Loose Lips. I'm Ben Random. What I look to do is speak with people from different walks of life, get their story, look to instill optimism, inspiring tales from other people across the board. Uh, I've got another couple of chats coming up, uh, well, in about five minutes, actually. So in five minutes, I'm going to be speaking with Peter Chavanovich, who is a independent filmmaker. So we'll be speaking about him and his successes in getting a film from mind onto big screen. So if you want to check that, see me on the other side. Otherwise, stay cool, peace and light to you and yours.